Hello and welcome to this, what day is it, Thursday, free it's episode. It's a fucking free one, mate. <laughs> Milo. We're getting it free, can't. <laughs> Milo is joining us from Australia. That's right. And uh, we have Alice joining us from Glasgow. Mm-hmm. Hi. Uh, we have Hussein joining us from just having eaten about 20 minutes ago. Yeah, it feels like Australia in my mind. I don't know what that means. I just miss Australia <laughs> a lot. <I laughs> yeah. just miss We're Australia. all in various kinds of Australia. I'm in sort of like Northern Australia. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, Milo's in Australia. Alice is in Australia. the Northern Territory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hussein's in Australia of the mind. I'm in mm-hmm. Australia of the soul. And joining us is Migrants Rights campaigner Zoe Gardner, who has been on the show, I think, now three times. So please enjoy your complimentary mm. Prosecco. <laughs> Thank you for having me. And I guess I'm in Australia of the uh, horrible refugee policies. Yeah. 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 So it's exactly. just regular Australia. Saves yeah, time. That's, you know? it's two that's just the same Australia that yeah. Milo is in. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah. It's really it's so early. You're in it, but you're disagreeing with it, which yeah. is fair enough. Mm. That's right. We are going to, of course, be talking all about the, uh, I think, the application of the Nationality and Borders Bill, the Tories' uh, decision to take the what Australia showed us was a winning political slogan, "Stop the boats," uh, mm. and put it on a big lectern. Uh, how are the Liberals doing, yeah. by the way, in Australia? Are they good? <laughs> uh, are they doing I well? I presume they're still in power. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Tony Abbott ate an onion that time. How do you vote against that? Mm. Was it Barnaby Joyce or was it like one of the prime ministers who had like a, a trophy or something in his office with It was Tony Abbott, I believe. Was I it? stopped these on, on oh a boat. Oh my god. <laughs> oh my okay, god. well, you know, one of those is going begging now. So, you know, Rishi can sort of like mm. uh, get on eBay, ha- like if he's willing to pay the shipping from Australia, uh, and we can just do it all over again. That's right. But yeah. before we do all of Guys, that. Guys, I stopped the boats. <laughs> God. I'm working it's, on my sunak. It's, it's not as good as your starmer. Uh, no. Before and and of course as well, there are the some things that you might be wondering: Are we going to talk about it? Uh, the answer is the oh, uh, sort of upcoming Trump indictments and Balaji Srinivasan's insane Bitcoin bet. Those are coming in the bonus, which we've already recorded. So hold tight. And are we going to be talking about the uh, decision that now seems to be re- the oh, sorry the opinion rather that now seems to be respectable to hold? which is the Met Police shouldn't exist, and we're going to be talking about that in a future episode. So, I wanted to start, though, by revisiting an old friend of ours, Mr. Mr. Brian, uh, Mr. Brian Cuball Armstrong, uh, the, the man who decided that uh, he didn't want to waste time at Coinbase, send pronouns, and, uh, and, and have in a safe space, uh, now appears to have attracted the ire of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Uh, that's oh, no. right. If if you remember the documentary that we saw about Coinbase, where the sort of like central failing of it was watching this very bald man spend ten minutes trying to pay for one donut using Coinbase, mm. I I feel like awesome. what happened is the transaction has finally gone through and he has just been instantly tackled by like five federal agents. Yeah, f- five federal agents wearing different alphabet agency windbreakers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In-, in the same way that, like, the FBI will set people up with, like, a fake bomb and then jump them the second they go and, like, plant it somewhere, that, like, the latency time on that donut transaction was the <laughs> only thing saving him from, like, whatever SEC charges he's currently facing. 
Yeah, in fact, the, the, his legal advice was just keep, come on, just slow it down. This is the only thing keeping you out of jail. <laughs> yeah, just, just get your pen n- number wrong a bunch of times, you know. Um. Uh, so he said, after, after years of asking for reasonable crypto rules, we're disappointed that the SEC is considering courts over constructive dialogue. But if courts are required, so be it, which is tough talk for someone uh, who um, sold a huge number of shares before any of these allegations were made public. This is a, that's, that's extremely divorce court language there. <laughs> oh, oh, the wife has rejected dialogue. She's taking me to court. <laughs> She's taking me to court. She's taking my crypto. All my <laughs> apes jailed. Yeah, my, my wife's getting custody of the apes. <laughs> <laughs> so so that's, uh, that's revisiting Coinbase. Uh, I think we can all issue a hearty good luck uh, to Brian mm. Armstrong uh, in his fight for justice. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. yeah, absolutely. What about commemorative Coinbase? Could that be a thing? You <laughs> yeah. know, where I you just pay be. for your petrol with a Princess Diana fiver. Probably mm. takes about the same amount of time, too. No, mm. no, no, no. Uh, there's one other thing I want to talk about before we get into the startup, which is, of course, it is 2023, the 20th anniversary mm. of the Iraq War. And uh, wouldn't you know it, the mea culpas are flying thick and fast from some of the uh, people responsible for promoting or mm. spinning or planning it. Uh, they just seem to lack much mea or culpa, more of a, wow, this went really badly. Who could possibly have, well, whoever I mean, let this uh, happen really, like, really played a stinker. Who could possibly have predicted this? Uh, many, many people, including me. And I was working with the considerable impediment of being 12. Like, I knew mm. it was a bad idea. <laughs> but, like, God. strangely, they didn't listen to me at the time. So, Guardian leader entitled uh, Hindsight is 2020 when it comes to the Iraq war by Mia Culpa. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, have, you, have you seen much of this, Zoe, flying around? Uh, yeah, it's been difficult to miss. I mean, it... It's it's depressing, obviously, but it's also it is hilarious the sort of scramble to be the the one who is redeemed by um, sufficiently quickly saying, oh yeah, no, 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 it turns out that was a, ba- a pretty bad idea. Um, nobody seems to be really reckoning with uh, conversations with the families of people killed or anything like that. Sorry, I'm such a downer when I come on your podcast. Oh, like you guys are funny around me, and I talk about horrible shit. <laughs> no, it just means your brain is working. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that just that just means that you have correctly. It means you have correctly assessed the world around you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, but talking of like experts warning people about things going wrong, I mean, I wish that, um, yeah, people would listen to that a bit more often. I mean, and we're going to talk about it later, but we, we've got a new bill before Parliament that we're saying will make everything worse for refugees. They they brought one in a year ago, and everything I told them would happen has happened, and it's just extraordinary. I mean, I guess we'll have to wait twenty years and see, but uh. and you might you might get like the the person who is like probably most responsible individually for migrant deaths is gonna like do a podcast with Rory Stewart. I'm really mm. surprised <laughs> I'm really surprised that no one has tried to do the whole like if they haven't tried to write some sort of column about how we had the Iraq war and now we have the Iraq war. I feel like someone the has awoke, tried to do that. Like, no, it, just, it just doesn't it doesn't it doesn't the, uh, the unwoke roar. <laughs> look, look, okay. Some hey, editor hey, of the Sunday hey, Times hey, is like wait. desperately trying to make it. People like, will literally in. start the Iraq war but not fight the unwoke roar. Interesting. So, so <laughs> I think Andrew Doyle, <laughs> Brendan O'Neill, if you're listening, put your strange gigantic heads together and please, mm. please write this article. Um, so, uh, Alice, you mentioned the um, 
podcast with Rory Stewart. Oh, this, now, this really blackpilled me. This like a profoundly depressing experience that like so many people were like, "Oh, this is like you know a historically important document. It's like a bipartisan sort of like reasonable compromise across the aisle with the guy who had David Kelly hounded to suicide and like a guy who looks like a fucked horse ghost." Cool. Right. Yeah, so this is uh number one, I I I bristle at you d- at even anyone else describing a podcast as an important historical document, but <laughs> we'll go on. Uh so what Alice is referring to, of course, is Alistair Campbell's cutesy little project with Rory Stewart, where they uh have a little bit of fun with the news. Um uh, called The Rest is Politics. Now, I put myself through a lot for the listeners. I read a lot. I watch terrible shit. I listen to terrible shit. I write it down to represent it to my friends and you because you all seem to enjoy it for some reason. I am presenting you a quote from the podcast episode by Alistair Campbell and Rory Stewart on the Iraq War that was transcribed in an article about the podcast because I refuse to fucking listen to it. You're not worth it. I'm sorry. (laughs) But you did read the transcript. Yeah, I would yeah, yeah. do anything for love. <laughs> I won't do that. This is uh, this is what uh, this is what they said. For all those soldiers who were killed, who died, and for all the other people who were killed and injured, for all the trouble there has been, I can make the case that a lot of the aftermath problems were created by forces who would be doing terrible things elsewhere. Were elsewhere were were not there, and might even have been doing it there. But at the same time, I recognize that it's one of those things that you wish you could just put into the category of having it of, excuse me, of it never happened. Damn, I wish we could have put that into that fucking category, Alistair. That was such a circumlocutory way of saying we shouldn't have done it. Yeah, I'm not saying we shouldn't have done it, but I am saying that, you know, in in an imaginary world where we hadn't done it, that might be preferable to the world we live in, which is the world where we have done it. It's it's also completely like suspending cause and effect. This idea that like uh, the forces, right, that we were fighting against in Iraq, whether that was sort of like the you know Shia death squads or Sunni death squads or Iran, uh, like all of those things, those would have just happened anyway. Um, d- like why? Prove it to me. Why why is that the case? Why would there not be a causal link between? Uh, us like destabilizing the like authoritarian government holding it all together and like keeping those things from being in play why would it just have collapsed on its own why would we have had to do anything about it and even if we had wouldn't that still have been better than doing it on what we knew to have been a lie does that just have no moral valence anymore and i know the answer is yes because alistair campbell is a demon right but like at least let me ask that you know yeah and like Iraqis being consistently among the top five nationalities of people crossing the channel in small boats. Like, would mm. that have needed to happen? Well, we can go on, in fact, and we can say what Rentoul said in his Not Mia, Not oh, Culpa. Fuck me, Jesus oh, awesome. Christ. Because I'm afraid. Blair he, Renfield. I'm a, yeah, I'm a, well, I'm afraid um, the man who's combined Dracula and Renfield uh, has said regarding uh, what you said, Alice. I'm my own Renfield. <laughs> he says, <laughs> I he, love he said, myself. I do not drink wine. That's what he said. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so no one, he says, no one can know what would have happened if Saddam Hussein had been left alone, parenthetically going on, Although, yeah, that's like saying the guy that the guy that I shot, the guy that I shot, right? He could have turned out to be Hitler. 
We don't know. He could have had a full life. We don't know, right? Uh, and therefore, Your Honor, I haven't done anything wrong. It's like no, the fact it's that like you forced all with those the death possibilities. Penalty. Yeah, mm -hmm. nobody Absolutely. commits a crime after being like having the death penalty happen to them. <laughs> well, Saddam Hussein certainly hasn't. So, <laughs> it's, so I'm going to read that again because there's a parenthetical that really is going to bake your noodle. Uh, no one can know what would have happened if Saddam Hussein had been left alone, parenthetical, although Bashar al-Assad's civil war in Syria provides one analogy, suggesting oh that my as God, though, the like, relaxation I vein is in full effect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, famously, something in which we have absolutely no exposure, the Syrian civil war. Fucking Christ. <laughs> the goal of these people. And so, you know, it's these, this, this idea of, well, we did it, and clearly a bunch of bad things happened because we did it, but what if something worse had happened, and I kind of wish we didn't? However, it is crucial that me, and everyone who agrees with me, and all of my friends, and everyone who thought we should do it, gets a gimme on that one and every other thing. That we still have, we have to attach ourselves with vice-like claws to the public of this country, then we will never fucking free our, we will never free them of our just terrible husks. We are inflicting ourselves on them forever. It robbed us of the potential fail-son regime of Uday and Kusei Hussein. <sighs> That's true. Can you imagine just like Rishi Sunak having to have a meeting with someone who's just got like a gold AK on the table? Like That would have been awesome. I mean, th just, yeah, yeah, YouTube president. But like, the, the fundamental lie here, right, the, the lie that they started telling before the invasion and that is they're still telling now is that this was not a war of choice, that we were not proactive about it, we were only reactive, right? Uh, we didn't have any agency here, and, you know, all of these bad actors, they're all acting, they would have acted anyway, and hey, it's, you know, it's a bad neighborhood, stuff happens, and, you know, we, we were sort of, our hand was forced, and it's like, you could almost forget that they, you know, confected uh, a reason to invade a country uh, and, and did it because they wanted to and felt absolutely no remorse about it. Yeah, well, you know, what if what if they were going to do the plot of the Michael Bay film, The Rock? But um, the last thing about this, right, is just an observation as well. This is also from Rentals column. Uh, he says, it also changed us in less obvious ways. And by us, I mean we British. I don't think it has had as much of an effect on the Americans. And that's actually got me thinking, like, in the U.S., you do not see nearly as many of the Iraq War cheerleaders still in public life. You see the columnists, yes, mm. but you don't see, like, the Alistair Campbell equivalent still insisting on f inflicting themselves in the American no, people. I mean, uh, there's a couple, like Thomas Friedman, but, like, Douglas Fife, for instance, is not, like, in the New York Times. But, like, uh, well, you I know where those guys are, though. This. The Bush guys are. They're all, like, they're the ones that are still alive, well, like, fucking Rumsfeld's dead, the ones that are still mm. alive, they're just off, like, on the board of Prospera or running a hedge fund or doing these. They're not in, they're not still insisting that they need to be important and prominent and political and public. We can't say what Romsfeld would be doing if he was still alive. That is an unknown unknown. <laughs> yeah. Uh, shooting more of his friends in the face. I, I, mean, I have a theory about this, and that's that, like, Britain has about five people in it, for the most part. And, like, yeah. And yet, and the they're fact all on that this podcast. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but we have to feel like we're competing with the US in the sort of, like, takes complex, right? Which means we are trying to sustain, uh, a, like, a US number of pundits and columnists and stuff on a population that does not begin to equal the US's. And so none of these people ever go anywhere. 
that's why like there's everyone is seemingly a newspaper columnist and why they have these like eternal lives in print is because we can't afford to get rid of them because you, you know we we can't just reach in and pull a you know a Barry Weiss or whatever out of our educational system because you know there's only a couple of them we cannot allow a columnist gap with our closest <laughs> neighbors and allies. Look, no, we, I, I need, wanna... we need to be built. We need to be like grooming the kind of the dipshits of tomorrow, like Barry Weiss, you know. <laughs> uh, and we're not doing that. And that's the real sort of like national oh, security. So many exports you really have left. Yeah, we we're yeah. gonna need some. We're, we need to train up next our next uh, generation of just toxic public morons. Yeah. Where, yeah. where is our next Christopher Hitchens? Given given how pathetic a lot of the Iraq the Iraq War cheerleaders' excuses are, I think they should start going with just like more entertaining excuses. I want to see at least one of them be like, "Look, I really enjoyed Bravo Two Zero by Andy McNabb, and I thought this was the best way of getting a sequel." <laughs> I'm sorry, I was hungry. I pushed the wrong button. Uh, I'm mental I'm health. Sleepy. Uh-huh. <laughs> with a fat finger error, I pushed yes. Yeah. I meant no. Um, I, I accidentally I, put a comma in no Iraq war. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so I want to add, I want to add just a, a little bit of, you know, TF flavor to the proceedings before we proceed to talk mm. about the, um, the bill, our main topic of discussion, because I, boy, did I have a, a, a it's actually a matched pair of startups that do something mm. very similar, Ooh. but that are annoying in two different ways. Mm. So do we want to start with sheaf or dish divvy? Uh, Both of these sound like slurs. Like (laughs) uh, something something you would get called in a Victorian novel. You know, like throwing sort of a wet rag at the scullery maid and calling her a dish divvy. (laughs) So we're gonna we're going to start with our guest. We're gonna start with Sheaf. It's S H E F. Is that not Chef? I know it's Sheaf. Oh, Uh, I I thought it was Chef also for for like a long E. I thought it was chef also, but they provide a dic- they provide a definition of this new word that they've created that's a portmanteau of two other words, and so it actually is probably sheaf. Oh, wow. no. Um, I really hate that already. Does it have something to do with condoms? Uh, no, it actually does not. Uh, Googling con- best yeah. condom and this company comes <laughs> up. Yeah. Uh, Hussein. Sheaf. Sheaf. S-H-E-F. Sheaf. Fuck, I don't know. I mean, my initial... My initial impulse is to sort of say that it's a new sort of uh, leadership position for women. It, it is for women, or at least <laughs> uh, it's marketed uh, the, to the, women. The she certainly kind of gave it away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, it always does. All right. Wait, so uh, is it like she chief? Like uh, the lady uh, almost, chief? You were so close. Just take out that eye. She chef? Yes. Oh, correct. wow. So this she- is for like women who newly cook. This is for women who cook. I thought you said it wasn't so tortured. So it is chef, but like they're insisting on the long e because of the she. That's that's terrible. Mm. (laughs) Oh, this is not the most. This is not the most (laughs) terrible thing about it. Not by a long shot. Uh, So they say chef noun one a combination of she and chef two in honor of mothers and parents everywhere who do so much to support and nourish their families and communities. They could have done she chef, which is kind of a pun on sous chef. That would have, that would have sounded yeah. better, I think. Yeah, yeah, well, so at Chief, we're rebuilding the food system from scratch, redefining who can participate in the food economy, and returning personal connection to <laughs> the, the making. Food Sorry, there's, 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 there's food something economy. really funny about this. To be like, imagine if women could cook. Like, imagine yeah. if women were allowed into the kitchen, and it's like. <laughs> At a professional level, sure, but like, 
Yeah, it is a very funny area of misogyny where it's like women should do the cooking at all times unless they're being paid for it, in which case they're obviously not capable of doing that and only men should do it. So I Women think can only cook if it's unpaid. So this is sort of the, the, let's say, what they're saying they're trying to solve. So they say, at Sheaf, we're rebuilding the food system from scratch, redefining who can participate in the food economy, and returning personal connection to the making, eating, and sharing of food. We are. Don't say the food economy. We are an <laughs> online marketplace for local certified cooks to connect with customers in their community and earn a local meaningful moms. income selling homemade dishes. Local moms in your area. Have they just invented a restaurant? No, no. It's, invented- it's worse than that. What yeah. they've done is they've gotten. There's not enough women in professional restaurants and professional cooking. Fine, right? Therefore, in order to get women into it, we're going to make the professional cooking more like home cooking, which women already mm. uh, expected to do. It's but, so belittling on so many levels. Yes, it, it feels right? like an like, outdated take, right? That To say, like, oh, the she version of something. It's like, that's belittling to say that women can be the she version of something. We can just be the thing. Like, that feels like a 90s feminist take. Why are they making me make a 90s feminist take? So... This is this is this. I'll, I'll I'll add to this a little bit. It's not just reinventing a restaurant, and it's not just bringing women into professional cooking by making it like home cooking. It's saying, what if we took the Airbnb uh, Deliveroo Uber model and pushed it back up the value chain? And what if we basically said, hey, instead of having a restaurant, we can do to restaurants what Uber did to taxi services, and have um, again women who were empowering, by the way. Uh, mm. Supply their own um, uh, uh, facilities, power, uh, time, and then they're, what they're going to do is they're going to cook the food, and then they're, then it's going to be delivered by one of our delivery drivers, and they're going to get paid per meal. So what we've done is taken the Uber piecework model, and it's because they, it's like you look at Deliveroo and you're like, ah, I sure do wish... Uh, that more of the people involved in the producing and distribution of this food could be subject to the same working conditions as this. And they, they figured it out. I wish it was called to live her route. <laughs> yeah, I wish it was called that too. So, uh, I had another one as well. Just, just, just her. Go, please. Uber sheets. What if you took a restaurant and turned it into a rest her aunt? Yep. Yeah, I'm here, I'm here all day. Yeah. Excellent. <laughs> just yeah. tapping, just, just typing the yeah. dust off my shoulders. Yeah. Sheaf, hire us. Po- <laughs> poacher turned gamekeeper, come on. <laughs> <laughs> they say, more than anything, the power of homemade food comes from the love and care of those who make it. Again, under gig economy conditions, uh, who are technically, mm. according to the 1099 forms they would file in California, independent contractors with no rights. Also, but like, w- women have been like expected to do home cooking since like for fucking thousands of years or whatever. What about this is supposed to be revolutionary other than just selling it? This also just feels like they're just trying to turn every home into a into a ghost kitchen. Yes, that's the idea, right? Mm, that sort of that sort cool. of feels like the thing that's missing, which is like when no, when you open up the kitchen and you turn it into a place that makes things for money then that is not a kitchen. That is not a home kitchen anymore by the very definition of it. And you can sort of wrap it up. And the thing is, like, restaurants already sort of do this anyway. I don't really do delivery very much, but a couple of times I've been on. Like, lots of, like, small restaurants market themselves as, like, you know, home cooking places. Mm. So the only thing those mm. would do is like, like it, it, oh, but it's a woman who cooked it this time. Yeah, a woman a woman cooks so it. So that's what makes it like brings back the sort of personal touch to it. It's because yeah. w- women have mm. a personal touch actually. And, Men and have also, an impersonal. Touch. And also no employment rights. 
Oh, yeah, no, no. Yeah. No, 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 that's a bit impersonal. Well, because, you're, have, work- well, yeah. because you're working from your home. If they have rights, that's impersonal. This no is thing. fucking founded by yeah. Sylvia Federici. Like, <laughs> uh, So they say, at Chef, we're bringing the sharing economy to the table. Now, uh, Zoe, you might want to hold on to something for this next sentence, because I think it's going to uh, be, it's quite a doozy. Uh, <clears throat> okay. We believe in, sorry, our, in providing our sheafs who are often refugees, immigrants, and stay-at-home parents, the opportunity to make a oh, meaningful good. income from their very own kitchens. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, no, no, they're not, they're not just women. They're also refugees, and that makes it twice as personal. In fact, this time it's mm. internal. When I see, when I see refugees uh, coming to this country, I don't think of them as refugees. I think of them as chiefs. <laughs> just a, just, what is a refugee but a future chief? I really should work for their marketing department. I feel like... I feel like they're missing out on a lot of You're stuff. You're doing like an unpaid, very like an interview for it right now. Yeah, you know? yeah, and I'm doing it from my and I'm doing it from my kitchen. But it's yelling so at some other brave men like, don't you realize this woman could be making you a tuna pasta bake next week? <laughs> Sorry, Zoe, the thing is again, stop. it's very it's it's still like the ghost kitchen model because like I vaguely remember reading when Mr. Beast was doing the Beast Burger thing. Um, and for I, I correct me if I'm wrong, but I vaguely remember the article kind of being like hmm. the people who are sort of making these burgers are like yeah are like immigrants and refugees they sort of what they have worked for like other or they have worked in sort of other kitchens and all that's happened is that like the the mr beast branding has kind of gone on it so effectively mr beast gave two thousand starving people a burger the the, the mo's is literally just like okay well if you know instead of having a commercial kitchen where you have like lots of immigrants in a very small space making fast food you can get women immigrants do at their homes and then this brings up another question too which is like well it also depends on their housing and depends on how many people are in the apartments that they live in or whether those apartments have functioning kitchens that are necessary to but Hussain what if it was Mrs. Beast (laughs) yeah you ever think of that I didn't. Yeah. Okay, checkmate. So again, it's the same thing, right? Of uh, like Uber frees the company making all the money from the cab rides from the need to own the cabs. Instead, what happens is the taxi driver or car service, the ta- the car service drivers then have to pay for the cabs and pay for the gas and pay for the insurance. It's the same thing where now, hey, you run your own kitchen. You pay for your gas. You pay for your power. You pay for your insurance. You pay for your stove. If it breaks, you fix it. Uh, it's a way of having it's a I mean, it's quite it's ingenious, really. It's a way of having a ghost kitchen without ha- even having to invest in the fucking ghost kitchen. It's making your workers all build your kitchen for you and distribute it throughout the city, which is evil, but ingenious, but evil. Uh, sorry, Zoe, you were going to say something. I mean, I, I've, I've probably forgotten about 12 things I was going to say, but I mean, it's just crazy because like, yeah, I mean, Deliveroo, which is pretty much synonymous with like the exploitation of migrant workers specifically. And it's just taking that like platform model and applying it to, I guess, like private chef or catering, home catering sort of model. And what does this bring? It just and then they just sprinkle a few words like woman and and refugee on it to sort of make it sound woke. I mean, like who falls for this shit? I can tell you exactly who falls for it. Uh, Venture capitalists. Yeah, uh, <laughs> number one, uh, Andreessen Horowitz fell for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, once, once again, the stormbreaker money being put to bad use. Chief <laughs> <laughs> has raised over twenty million dollars since its founding in twenty eighteen. I think has raised more since. It was founded and it was founded by Alvin Salahi, a former White House technology advisor under Barack Obama and the founder of Code.gov. Oh, I love the Whiz Kids. They're yeah. so cool. 
This so is I, this I, is like Cal Penn's character on fucking Designated Survivor, is what this is. <laughs> so I, b- before we go on to our, our main topic, I've got another one. Uh, Dish Divi, which basically does the same thing. But uh, there was an article in TechCrunch where they interviewed the founder, uh, Annie Tarosian, um, and I just couldn't leave the quotes on the table. Tarosian said, I am now a busy working parent, and although I love to cook, we always have the dinner dilemma of what to eat. I have a mother-in-law who is also a good cook, and I kept thinking, again, this is quite a, these next words are quite a doozy, so do look out. I kept thinking about how to productize what she was doing. Wow. <laughs> I tried to package, I tried to package up my mother-in-law, folks. I watched my mom caring for my family, and I just thought, there's got to be some profit to be made in that. <laughs> Rod- Rodney Dangerfield voice. I tried to package up my mother-in-law. Yeah, I simply love looking at my parents and the people I care about and think about how can I use them uh, to extract goods and services. Yeah, just, mm-hmm. just seeing your mother, like mother-in-law, like preparing some home-cooked meal and just <laughs> li- and like like a shit like a sailor marooned in a desert island, she just turns into a cash flow diagram. Yeah, well, you know, your, your, your mother can start by making like really nice traditional food that like you mm. kind of grew up with, and then when you realize that actually the real profits are in burgers. You can demand her to like then make Mr. Beast burgers. Imagine a burger. Yeah, I mean, I I love the way startup people talk. I I find it endlessly. I mean, even even just saying like fucking the dinner dilemma that we face every day. It's just like most people manage to surmount this <laughs> every day in our daily lives. But this yeah. is what it is like. It's just a couple of steps on from something that's totally reasonable, right? Because like, I mean, there are like great like small businesses restaurants run by like uh, you know migrants or refugee communities in all over London and they you know they talk about themselves like social enterprise type things like within the same language it's just like one little step further where people have said okay okay that ticks all the right boxes in terms of like appealing to you know woke demographics or something in London um but but just make it just 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 push it over so that it's horrible and exploitative <laughs> it's just insane yeah well but the question they see all of these like you know can be like let's say cooperatively owned businesses or whatever and they say, how can Andreessen Horowitz profit by becoming a middleman here? Yeah. Andreessen Horowitz hates the shallow market about Yeah, it's, it's, it's shoving, shoving some tech bro into the middleman space. <laughs> exactly that. So, uh, I'll go on. The reason for its success was that it was providing tools to take the boring business stuff out of running a business to help people focus on their craft. The boring business stuff, the you know, like making, a, like making the money off of the thing that you sell and not having to give 25%, 15 to 25% of it uh, to a platform that, well, it doesn't directly set your prices because it's pooling you with everybody else. Uh, Probably like it causes you to have to match everyone else's prices. And again, uh, directly. the assumption that like migrants or women, you know, they they don't have those like clever numbers, business brains. They just they just want to get down to like you know the the the, the cooking of the nice nurturing food. It's all ah, oh, it's so they, patronizing. They, they just are one way conduits for love, and then we'll unburden them of all of that boring old money that they yeah, that they, they didn't like, need or want. Commoditized and packaged up this authenticity, and then sort of yeah. like uh, you know removed it. Conduit for Love feels like a great like '80s stadium rock. That's tune. a Richard Highsmith song. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. Nate, Nate, <laughs> yeah. Nate, take a note of this. Conduit for Love, please. Uh, let's have Richard Smith. Highsmith do this. Yeah, I'll believe, <laughs> yeah. So basically, the value proposition. They say this directly. They're like, we want to do for cooking what DoorDash did for delivery. Immiserate it. Yeah, obliterate it. Because uh, it, yeah, they're just like yeah. We saw there was another step in the value chain to like step back and precarize and burden workers. And again, this one ends like the sheaf bit 
ends. Tarosian has also been on the advocacy team leading the passage of California Bill AB 626, the California Homemade Food Act, which has paved the way for legislation around home kitchen operations into 44 cooking bills across 29 states since 2018. So the person who owns the company also wrote the law. Great. Great. (laughs) Yay. Not a conflict of interest. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's. I think that you know that they're clearly the expert uh, on 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 home cooking and, and doing all of. I mean, it's, hey, why would I ever break the law? I wrote the dang thing. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's that's sheaf and dish divvy. Uh, a real a, a a real rager of a startup. I think this time, just mm. a just a real a, a hearty then, fuck you then, to yeah. the owners of Tish Timmy and Sheep. So far, Riley, you've put together an infuriating episode. I hope we have something nice and light following this segment up. Uh, uh, you, if you were in the if you were in the studio, you would see me frantically tugging at my collar, googling like <laughs> hooning or something. Well, <laughs> well, actually, I've I've got something light for you. Um, uh, this is quick. My my cousin and I decided to go and have a surfing lesson yesterday, and I and I got to meet one of a genre of guy I think exists primarily in Australia. Something I like to call the nature himbo. Hmm. And he's just like driving us out to this remote beach, like through a forest, and he's just going like, "Yeah, like the forest is like it's really cool because like there's all kinds of like uh, plants and like critters in there, and they're just kind of getting along. That that's pretty cool. And uh, you know, like he's completely shirtless while he's doing this, and he's like, you know, you just think like thousands of years ago, like before there were roads or like people driving on them you know there were just indigenous people in there just just eating stuff you know it was like their <laughs> supermarket so that's that's pretty cool and he just kept right. saying that's pretty cool after everything you well, know it's pretty cool to be fair yeah, it's pretty cool he's correct this this is one uh, i imagine he's also super ripped so this is one cool guy yeah he was he was pretty jacked well that startup was uh enraging but ultimately good fun and yet now, of course, because we are talking about the UK's immigration, refugee, and asylum system, it is time for another TF jarring shift in tone. This is from a press release a um, couple, couple weeks ago. Uh, it says, earlier this year, the Prime Minister made stopping the boats one of his five promises to the British people. The stop the boats or illegal migration bill will fulfill that promise by ending illegal entry as a route to asylum in the UK. So, what? How does this fit together with stuff like nationality and borders bill? How does it fit together with, I'd say, like the political priorities of um, all of the the great and the good that we discuss so much? Like some of the people we might have discussed earlier on, who are uh, very not sorry about what they didn't do in, the, in terms of the Iraq War. Um, can you just give us a little bit of table setting? Uh, sure. Yeah. So um, this is a new bill um, that it, it basically it's 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 the Nationality and Borders Act part two electric boogaloo and with all the fascistic sort of implications of using that like uh term it what it does is it it says that anybody who enters the uk um through an irregular route of any kind so not just actually on boats but in the back of a truck or um employing any kind of deception in order to enter the uk or for example if the person trafficking them employed deception to get them to enter the uk anybody who falls under that category why these are just chiefs officer (laughs) um they will um uh, not they will have their asylum claim deemed inadmissible so they will not be allowed to apply for refugee protection in the uk at all ever 
So the difference between this and uh, the its predecessor, the Nationality and Borders Act, which became law uh, just a year ago, is that um, that that act tried to do the same thing, but it said, okay, but if after six months um, or you know around six months we can't get rid of you, then then okay, we will actually examine your claim. Um, and also, if you're um, a victim of modern slavery um, uh, or trafficking, we will examine your claim. And, you know, there were certain opt-outs, carve-outs. It's incredible to me. It genuinely is blowing my mind right this second that I'm talking about the Nationality and Borders Bill as having had, like, humanitarian exceptions to it. Um, but that's where we're at now. Um, this bill has no exceptions. It imposes a duty on the Home Secretary to remove anybody at all, regardless, you know, where they come from, uh, what they've suffered, whether they're a man, woman, or a child, um, and um, to detain them as well for a minimum period, no maximum period, but a minimum period of 28 days, um, and then to remove them literally anywhere. But obviously, um, obviously, it links up to the Rwanda scheme, um, and we can talk a bit about that. But like overall, there isn't the uh, the systems in place to remove them to many places. Um, it doesn't, fortunately, yet override the uh, obligation on us not to remove somebody to a country where their life and safety will be at risk. So um, people cannot just simply be returned to countries that they're coming from that where their life and safety will be at risk, like Afghanistan, Iran, Iraq, Sudan, Eritrea. Um, and these are the main countries that people are coming from um, in the asylum system. So they can't be sent back there. They Some of them maybe could be sent to Rwanda, um, but for the rest of them, it leaves them in limbo for the rest of their lives um, with never any rights to any kind of status in the UK. And even if they were to then have children in the UK, those children would never have any right to any kind of status in the UK. So it really is pretty much as grim as I can imagine. But I, I say that with the caveat that, you know, I thought the Nationality and Borders Act was as grim as we would get. And um, they can always, always get worse. So, you know, watch this space because what this is really about is so evidently runs counter to many of our international legal obligations. It, this is about laying the ground for having a big fight about it in the courts um, and then uh, standing the next election on the basis of withdrawing from those international human rights um, mechanisms that protect all of our rights. Um, so, yeah. And the human rights lawyer in charge of the opposition seems to be somewhat uh, missing in action uh, with the main uh, labor response being, you aren't you promised to stop the boats. The boats are still coming. How have you not stopped the boats? We would stop the boats more effectively, essentially surrendering entirely uh, the framing, uh, not just the framing, but the the goals, the methods, uh, surrendering whether or not this the this is a moral and just thing to do because we sort of decided, I think, that uh, politics is about the exercise of uh, technical skill to achieve a number of set ends that just are given to us from the heavens, I suppose, uh, that are sort of spring autochthonous from the ground in this country. The government is trying to stop the boats in the wrong way. We need to go about it in a more sensible way. We need to meet these boats halfway across the channel and say, look, Britain is shit. Why do you want to come here? <laughs> Honestly, the continent is a lot better. They still have roads that function. Give them a go. <laughs> so... So it's a so Braverman, and even then, even then, right? <laughs> it's a border when, force guy on a speedboat holding up a series of large placards of shit English towns. Oh, but you like, joke, you but sure? they they did. They went and they they put up posters. This has been something we've been doing for ages, and you know we we pay for this to be done. 
by by the Home Office. They put up posters in countries of origin and countries of transit saying, don't come to the UK, it's not that great. I promise you, they actually do this for real. Like satire is dead. I mean, at least they're being honest. You know what? It's like one of the few things the British government does that is honest is saying, don't come to the UK, it's bad. (laughs) So... Um, so this is even even while Starmer is agreeing with the substance, but suggesting essentially that they have been a little bit reckless in its application. Uh, the response is uh, from Braverman is I've presented and we voted on measures to detain and swiftly remove illegal migrants. And this weekend I met with refugees who have been successfully resettled in Rwanda and seen the accommodation people will be using. What has the Labour Party done? Well, the shadow home secretary has gone on Twitter. She's very good at using Twitter. And this is at the same time, of course, as, uh, again, government-friendly newspapers, I believe this was the Mail, uh, said that Starmer was, uh, was instrumental in keeping what they called foreign criminals, which were actually, again, Windrush deportees who would have been deported to their deaths in Jamaica from probably some shit they did when they were 18, I don't know. Or just, or just were like accused of when they're 18, th- this being, you know, the 70s or the 80s, how the fuck do you know? What they said is that he kept foreign criminals in the country and can't be trusted to get them out. So all of this agreeing with the framing, all of it, all of this um, abdication of responsibility to oppose, oppose on moral grounds, to be somehow involved in organizing against the fact that they are doing this uh, is basically coming to exactly the same end exactly the same end as it would have been if he actually did any of those things. The result from the papers, from the Tory party, from the people he is trying to very cleverly steal a march on by agreeing with them before they can make castigate him for not doing it, the same fucking shit is happening. The same response is happening. Yeah, I mean, I think we have like a direct example. This is one of those relatively rare examples in life where you you have a direct example of exactly the same fight happening one year ago Um, and and Labour's failure to take a moral stance and to defend the right um, that we have in this country and around the world and that we've had for 70 years that anybody can come to us and say I'm a refugee I need protection and that we will give them a fair and individual assessment of that claim right that that right which necessarily happens by people entering the country sometimes through irregular means um, was not defended last time Um, and that has completely left the ground open now for that right to be essentially extinguished in this country. I mean I say essentially to be completely it was essentially last time this time it will be completely extinguished in this country because um, that fundamental right for anybody to come here and say "I, I need asylum is something that the, that Labour failed to um, defend, and and that many advocates actually, you know, against the bill last time also failed to 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 take a stand on that basis. And um, what what's happened under this bill is that you know by talking about um, groups that are hated by society, so that's foreign criminals, by talking about young men, by talking about Albanians, uh, what the government is actually doing is introducing uh, powers that discriminate. Absolutely, like not at all, just simply on a completely blanket basis, deny the right to seek protection to anybody at all, which just goes to show, like, please, can this be the lesson for once and for all time that we should never try to equivocate on these moral values? We should never accept that maybe the humanity of a young man from Albania is less so than of, you know, a child who who comes from, uh, I don't know, Sudan. Ukraine, yeah. better example, 
right? We should never give ground on that because when we gave ground um, last time, what happens is absolutely clear, which is that they will sweep away all of our rights. And once again, I say, you know, this is about having a fight about leaving the the European Court on Human Rights at the next election. And those rights that are protected under that is not just the rights of refugees, it's of all of us. And um, this is a project that's been deliberately pursued. And it proves that we must stand ground for every single human right to human rights. I mean, it, it seems so basic. And yet the human rights lawyer um, leading the Labour Party doesn't seem to have got the memo, um, doesn't seem to have learned the lesson. Um, and, and obviously, you know, the government is at fault here and the government is the, the key antagonist here. But uh, there, there has been a failure, I think, across the board um, in terms of framing the argument and 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 presenting this issue, you know, this isn't about small boats. This is about the UK. This is about what happens here. This is about anybody who enters the country through a, a vast range of different means, um, being trapped here in limbo, um, having the same thing that happened to the, to the Windrush generation happen to them, being subject to the hostile environment, having no right to work legally. Um, you know, th- most of these people will stay in that situation for their entire lives. They will be with no status in our communities for their our, their entire lives. And obviously, they will be subject to massive exploitation. Obviously, this will be fuel for criminality across the country, like work uh, exploitation for anybody who doesn't have the right to work mm-hmm. will be massively increased. This is already a huge problem in the country. You want to talk about... Act- so, I, no, I was just going to say... I was gonna. I was gonna say. I think this is probably a good time to bring up uh, one of the provisions of this bill, which says we will deprive people who are coming here irregularly of access to our world-leading modern slavery support system. So essentially, as you say about making um, diminishing human rights for all of us, basically implicitly saying, okay, we used to think that all slavery was bad. Now we are only willing to say some slavery is bad. And as soon as you lose that universal, then it becomes a negotiation of which slavery is bad. Uh, they, they say anyone illegally entering the UK will be prevented from accessing the UK's world leaving modern slavery support or abusing these laws to block their removal. <laughs> modern slavery support is such a funny term as though you're like calling a helpline and yeah, being so, like, I'm having trouble with my modern slavery. To. Like the the world leading uh, like modern slavery is not that world leading, uh, and you know we're still managing to try and exclude people from it. I mean, every smuggler and every trafficker must vote Tory. I mean, that's absolutely guaranteed. This is, I mean, a foghorn to anybody who wishes to exploit and enslave people. That hey, if they're foreign, then go ahead. We will never protect them. They're, they're literally saying we will never protect the victims of slavery if they if you bring them to this country if you bring them to this country through deception they don't need to have anything to do with it they can be that you know absurdly um vulnerable example of a person like it could be a 6 year old little girl and if if uh, their trafficker brings them to the country through deception they will never be able to benefit from protections um ag- against slavery i mean that is that is the level we are talking about there's no hy- hyperbole in what i just said that is what we're talking about doing and all in the name again of of the dehumanization of a bunch of like you know 25 uh, year old albanian men and th- and that's 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 the ground we seeded and what we talk about as well right the the other the other side of this right there's there's what happens when you come in but either you all i think it's always important to remember is why why coming in via an irregular route is so common 
is partly to do with just, and I, I sort of bring this up sort of repeatedly, it's partly to do with like airline travel regulations. If you fly in from, uh, let's say, if you, if you are in, I don't know, Iraq and you get over to Turkey and you try to board a plane, you take a bus to Istanbul and you try to board a plane to the UK, they won't take you because if you, because if you can't, if you don't already have a valid visa, which you can't get, then it's the airline's responsibility to pay the cost to fly you somewhere else. And so an air, because they don't know if your claim's going to be accepted, an airline will not fly you if you don't already have a visa. Basically, so if you want to know one of the reasons why people are coming via deception, it's because all of those, and it's not even like that's not even our rule. That's a European level rule. Like there are a complex of rules, some of which are ours and some of which are related to us, that um, prevent anyone from getting here normally. Basically. Yeah, and and just on that because it is the basics. But I do get asked this. It's like you know, it, probably most of your listeners are what. British or American, American maybe, yeah. yeah. Some Germans. Yeah, so you basically haven't experienced what it is like to get a visa to travel to um, America or or, the, or or Europe or wherever um, for people from countries where actual refugees flee. Um, it's incredibly difficult. And we, we require visas for every country that might produce a refugee. Um, and, and where there's a country that uh, we don't require visas, so last year... We didn't used to have a visas requirement for um, people from El Salvador. And then the repression of the government in El Salvador increased and um, a few hundred people started making their way to the UK and claiming asylum. And we immediately introduced visa requirements on El Salvador so that specifically so that people could no longer safely and legally make the journey to the UK um, by taking a plane. So it is impossible in most cases in all cases as a refugee to apply from outside of the UK for the for the paperwork that lets you enter the UK on a plane or on a ferry or on the Eurostar like anybody else would do it, um, and that is why people take um, these journeys. And ultimately, I do you know on a, on a podcast like this, like I shy away a little bit from saying like, well, the answer is safe routes. Like, yeah, sure, the answer is safe routes, but only on a on a, on a kind of like big scale, right? So. Sure, we should introduce uh, travel documents where people who are in northern France could apply on the basis that they would then enter the UK for the purpose of seeking asylum and enter our asylum system. But ultimately, any of these um, piecemeal so solutions will always leave somebody out. Um, and ultimately, that is brings us back to the fact that we really do need to defend the principle that regardless of how you came to the UK, you need to be able to apply for asylum. Um, and once you um, are established here and you have, if you have family members here, if you have connections here, then that should be the basis for the right to build your life here um, with, without being subject to these incredibly draconian policies in the hostile environment. What's really, what's really depressing to me is... There is a, a strong liberal case for this, and not only is there a strong liberal case for this, but it's one that we have seen be made successfully. Angela Merkel did the big, you know, sort of like uh, Schaffenwirdas, sort of like cultural shift in Germany. Germany took a shitload of refugees, and as much as, you know, like uh, blogs and people might like cry about it, it's been tremendously successful and it has helped a lot of people. German children are being exposed to flavour. Yeah, for the first time. Uh, and, like, you would think, maybe, that this would be a place where a lifelong human rights lawyer 
might be interested to show some leadership and maybe sort of like try to drive public opinion instead of being led by it. But uh, you know, Keir Starmer is is uh, a coward and you know perfectly happy to sort of like concede that that sort of that front to to racism. So well, he's busy with the great the great scourge of life in the UK, which is of course smelling weed on the street. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll talk about that on the crime episode. Yeah. But like, yeah, yeah, and um, I think it's it also bears bears mentioning. Not only have we seen robust opposition to this succeed elsewhere, and um, a sort of much more open and welcoming um policy towards you know refugees, specifically and immigrants generally. Not just like elsewhere, but like in lots of places, and those countries have benefited from it. This is like something which will like again. This is an argument that I hate making, right? Because the argument it's the liberal that, case. Yeah, it is the liberal case that like this will help our shitty economy, right? That like there there are a bunch of people who want to come to this country and like live and work and spend money and make money and like all of that shit. That shouldn't be the reason why we like allow or even encourage them to come here, but it is also a benefit to us. And like no one makes this case with like any sort of degree of influence and it's infuriating. Yeah, I actually like I actually like the potholes and I like the shit puddles and everything. So, and you know, and also if you make the country better, then what are you going to do with all those posters saying the UK is shit? Oh, that's You'll true. Have You'd have to, to take them, them down. Yeah. And it'd be yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of work. So uh, I don't want to waste that money retrospectively. I was doing a video with uh, Refugee Action the other week and was met a bunch of refugees and we were talking about how like just all the ones who are still in the asylum system aren't allowed to work and how they've been, the, the, one of the campaigns that they're doing is about allowing people who are in the asylum system to work. And they said that, kind of going back to what you were saying, Alice, like mm. a surprising number of really right-wing Tory MPs agreed to support this motion on the basis that asylum seekers are a burden on the taxpayer. And so it was the weird, it was like the weirdest like horseshoe meme of like asylum seekers do actually want to work. And actually you can sort of make a right-wing argument for allowing them to work, even though that isn't the reason <laughs> why you want to allow them to work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I obviously, I mean, I do support that campaign, but I, I would argue, and sorry to be nitpicky about this, but this is just how I am, I'm such a dick. Um, you don't have to give asylum seekers the right to work if you give them a decision within a couple of months on their claim. Um, and then, and then you know, the people who really need the right to work are the people who have been living here long term, um, undocumented, right? They, they're the people who are actually working in massive exploitation. You know, we were talking about exploited migrant workers with Deliveroo and that kind of thing. You know, often we're talking about undocumented workers in the in those circumstances, people who have no recourse to, you know, the very meager protections that exist for workers from exploitation um, in this country. You know, if you report being exploited as an undocumented worker, and you're the one who's going to be locked up, not your employer. In fact, your employer might get like a, a, a bribe in order to turn you in. So the people who need the right to work will be the, the vast swathes. That number of people who are undocumented in this country is going to be massively increased by if this bill comes into effect, and it will because look at us. Um, and, and those are the people who really need the right to work. I mean, they, Yes. I mean, obviously, when you have a situation as you have now where people spend on average over a year waiting for an asylum claim and that's why they're holed up in these hotels and they don't have the right to work, that's absurd. And those, those people should ha be given the right to work. But it, the only reason why they would ever need it is because the system is so stupid um, and, and such a failure. But this is also goes back to one of the things I was saying earlier, right? We've seen we've seen these sort of more humane policies to do with refugees and asylum seekers work well elsewhere. And we have seen 
when there is opposition to it, those self-same policies to demonize and exclude and exploit uh, and so on uh, refugees and asylum seekers eat fucking shit. Mm. All they have to be is opposed. And so all, and so it comes if you want to think of this in terms of party politics, which I think we're conditioned to because of our media environment and because of the way that our institutions are set up, the they have sort of monopolized quite a bit of this power and excluded people from bottom up participation. So why wouldn't you? Um, but at this point, this is why if you want to say who is the greatest enemy to progress or who's the greatest enemy to this being a humane and human place to live, a place you would a place that you know you would be you know, proud to be associated with and so on and so on the greatest obstacle at this point is the people who are sitting on the uh, button that says oppose this and refusing to press it for reasons of triangulation or for the reasons that they believe that these beliefs their, their beliefs about these beliefs are that they emerge naturally that they come from the fellow feeling of uh, co-nationalists uh, and that they are not crucially the result of a campaign that is now demanding further satisfaction they do not and cannot see the ratchet yeah and i think they're ultimately unconvincing as well to argue that you know by by tinkering around the edges and by a different kind of police patrol in france you're actually going to solve this issue the the problem is is that you know the the Tories have gone big and bold now with their suggestions. This won't solve the issue, but it will um, fundamentally change the picture, right? And what Labour's response is, is completely lacking in any meaningful, um, like, getting to grips with what this problem actually looks like of, you know, Looking at it longer term, people are not stupid. They know that migration is not going to stop. You look at like the climate catastrophes that are displacing more and more communities worldwide. You know, it's this week we had that report that largely went ignored from the IPCC talking about how like, you know, but we're basically not on track to even reach 1.5 degrees of uh, warming. This is going to cause massive displacement. Like people are always going to move. And and that's, you know, that's out of being forced by climate catastrophe and instability and oppression. But it's also just because that's what humans do. And it's actually, as we were saying before, a positive for almost everybody involved. Right. It's, it's a wonderful thing that, you know, it's just a basic human thing. Um but people will always move and we need to have responses from the other side of politics um, that, that actually get to grips with, with a world of mobility. And how can we make that look like something that works for us, for our communities and works for the people who are on the move as well and works for other countries and takes into account the basic reality that other countries are real countries, uh, which, which seems to be lacking in this discussion entirely. So on the one hand, yeah, you have this, this extreme, like absolutely horrendous, horrific extremism, but it's being matched by a sort of wishy-washy, we'll pretend the issue away. Um, you know, and, and, and people are not convinced by it. It's, it's ultimately not convincing that Starmer's deal with Macron is going to actually fix this issue in a way that, you know, Sunak's couldn't. It's, it's got to be a, a, a bigger, more ambitious and more brave political idea that talks about how we actually manage mobility in a world where people will always move. Well, uh, all I'll say is we, we tried that once. Uh, but but uh, this goes back to what you were saying about the ECHR as well, right? And, you know, with that at the moment, right, the next election looks like it's going to return a labor party, a labor government, more or less by default with a bath party margin and by some polls mm. and yeah, um, a margin not seen since the Iraq war. Yeah. And <laughs> and 
if you know, if you uh, sort of do, again, commit the ultimate sin in Britain and remember a few years ago, you'll remember Mm. that a fractious right, a fractious Tory party and fractious right wing was united by a popular in-press demand to leave a supranational institution, which, as you say, this is going to create. And yeah, so we're the gonna only take back control again. And so, yeah, we're mm. going to take it back, take back control again, take it harder. The Too only back thing to control, the only thing that's different, right, is that it's just a different institution. And the only thing that's going to stop, in my view, unless, again, some other very unexpected thing happens. But if things continue as they are. Uh, the Labour Party, by sheer default, by not being the people that fucked up your mortgage or whatever, that there's the only thing that's going to stop them from returning a Bath Party margin is going to be mm. if the right unites around a take back control narrative on leaving a supranational institution, which they're preparing the ground for now. And yep. Starmer seems to be walking the fuck into. It is funny, though, to imagine that because they're going to have to start like, I mean, no one really ever thought about like these kind of agreements before before politics got insane. Whereas like the EU was always something that people did bang on about a bit. But you can imagine like increasingly they're going to have to start leaving more and more niche like organize it like we're gonna take back control from scientific international we're we're getting rid of the kilogram. We're going back to the fucking furlong, the fathom. The pound weight. Sick of being bossed around by the World Intellectual Property Office. Well, but <laughs> it's interesting, right. isn't it? Because the, the, the arguments that I have had over the last few years, and you're right that like this hasn't been on the radar that much, but where, where people have been arguing that we should be withdrawing from international human rights treaties is on the basis like, we're the UK. We invented the concept of human rights. Yeah, okay. I, I, I'm, I'm quoting, right? Um and uh, so we don't need these supranational bodies to tell us what to do. We can enforce human rights ourselves much better. And then you come to the point where we're actually going to, you know, have the fight about leaving them. And it is entirely on the basis that we want to take away rights under those conventions. So it's a very interesting flip here from having been like, oh, we don't need this international body to tell us how to enforce human rights. We enforce human rights better than anybody to being like, no, 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 no. We want to remove human rights from this despised minority group and therefore we have to leave these conventions well all i can say is in 20 years i'm really looking forward to suella braverman's uh podcast with uh i don't know nigella lawson rory stewart Andrew too, Taylor. Whoever. yeah, yeah. 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 Trafficker. come on <laughs> she's doing a podcast with a boat and that's settling their differences uh saying yeah. oh i wish that all had never happened um mm. but uh I think that probably about does us for today. It seems like a good place as any to end. So, Zoe, mm. I want to thank you very much for coming on and bringing all of this knowledge today. Thank you very much for having me, as always. And I want a to A chilling thank- reminder of things to come, yeah. as always. <laughs> uh, Sorry for being the harbinger of doom, as always. <laughs> we I love wish- the harbing. You thank you for, yeah, thank you for reminding us that things might be bad now, but they could and probably will be worse. Oh, they yeah. always can be worse, yeah. yeah. That's, always. Um, that's the TF promise, baby. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> what every every episode. That's what that's what we deliver for you. Uh, so, and again, thank you very much for listening. Don't forget, there's a Patreon, five dollars a month. You can subscribe to it. Milo has various dates in Australia. You can find them on his website. Please, the Melbourne Comedy Festival, the 29th of March to the 23rd of April. I have not sold many advance tickets. I can't stress enough how expensive this trip is. Please. <laughs> And he's waking up at five in the morning to podcast for all you people. That's right. 
So, uh, otherwise, uh, there's the there's the Twitch stream. It's nine to eleven on Mondays and Thursdays. Uh, mm-hmm. There is uh, there's other things. You you know the stuff. Theme song. Here we go by Jensen. Yeah, the theme listen song. Here we go by Jensen. Listen to it on Spotify. Listen to it early. Listen to it often. Uh, and we will see you on the bonus episode. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.